welcome to Rising. We're back after the long holiday weekend, and it's good to be here. Brianna, how was your Memorial Day? It was great. I went home to Cleveland. The weather was great. Family was great. It was a good time. How about yourself? Good. I had family visiting from out of town, and uh, we did the whole monuments tour for someone who had Aww. actually never been to D.C., so it was uh, very Memorial Day appropriate. That's very charming, Robbie. All right, back to the nitty-gritty. Yes, back to the news. I believe there was some breaking. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy have substantially finally struck a deal on the budget. Yeah. We've got good news. We've got a just spoke with Speaker McCarthy. And we've reached a bipartisan budget agreement that we're ready to move to the full Congress. The deal is now being sent to Congress as the White House and Senate will try to make a mad dash to pass the bill before the government defaults on June 5th, as Secretary Janet Yellen has said it would in a recent address. Here's more of Biden on the matter. They said they'd only do it on condition that it have all these cuts in it. I said, I'm not going to do that. You pass the debt ceiling, period. I'll negotiate with you on the cuts, what you say, what's going to happen, what, what, what the budget's going to look like. That's what we are negotiating in order to get to them deciding that they're going to go along with a new debt ceiling, meaning that it's not attached. It's something totally different attached than was attached before. So if you want to try to make it look like I made some compromise in the debt ceiling, I didn't. I made a compromise on the budget. Now, what exactly is the deal here to help break us down, break it down for us, is The Hill's congressional reporter, Michael Schnell. Welcome. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So give us the details. You know, what does this compromise look like right now? We're seeing um, some cuts to um, IRS funding. You know, Republican wins are cuts to IRS funding, some work requirements for SNAP benefits, and then, you know, take us through it. Yeah, so that's exactly right. So the top of the, 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 the meat and potatoes of this debt limit agreement is that it'll raise the borrowing limit for two years. So we won't have to deal with the debt ceiling increase until after the 2024 presidential election. This was a top priority of Democrats. They did not want to have to deal with this showdown again before the election. So that is the top line main uh, detail of the bill. And then there are a number of spending cuts and, as you mentioned, work requirements, which were priorities of uh, Republicans. I'm just going to read off my notes page here since I want to be sure that I get all the particulars properly. It caps defense spending at $886 billion for fiscal year 2024. That is in line with President Biden's budget request from earlier in the year. And then it caps uh, and it's uh, $895 billion for fiscal year 2025. When we talk about those work requirements, um, it it, it add some beefed up work requirements, which again was a priority of Republicans. And then another part is you talk about that IRS funding. The bill rescinds $1.4 billion in funding that was appropriated for the IRS as part of the Democrats Inflation Reduction Act, which Congress passed last year. And then it also rescinds billions of dollars in unused COVID-19 funding. This was basically money that was appropriated during the pandemic. But now that Congress has passed legislation saying that uh, ending the COVID-19 national emergency, this bill claws back billions of those dollars in unspent funds. So those are just a couple top line figures and main parts of this bill. But look, it was a compromise between President Biden and between Speaker McCarthy. Both liberals and conservatives are, are not thrilled with it. Nobody got exactly what they wanted. But this is the compromise in the middle deal that Kevin McCarthy and President Biden came to over the weekend. I mean, what do you say to people who feel like this is a compromise that was completely at the expense of 
working Americans um, and that only politicians could celebrate. You're looking at student debtors as part of this so-called compromise, not only having student debt relief kind of off the table, it's been that way since it, been, it got caught up in the courts, but it mandates that student debt relief is going to end, the moratorium is going to end in August. Uh, moreover, the work requirements that were discussed are basically, the, the argument is that it's going to save the government some money by kicking some needy families, uh, poor people, et cetera, off of receiving certain TANF and, and other kinds of government benefits. And yet there was absolutely no appetite for raising taxes on the rich, repealing uh, the Trump tax cuts, which added $1.7 trillion to the deficit, or cutting military spending by even a dollar, as you mentioned, the military spending, um, you know, being capped, is capped at the level that Biden anticipated uh, asking for next year anyway. So, you know, what do you make of the winners and losers of this compromise? Yeah, well, look, President Biden and Speaker McCarthy have been very open in saying that this was not everything that they wanted, right? This is not their ideal piece of legislation. Republicans are frustrated that the legislation did not go far enough, that it didn't go as far as they wanted. It was, uh, you know, it was not as aggressive as the Limit Save Grow Act that House Republicans passed last month. But on the other side of the coin, Democrats were frustrated by a number of provisions that were included in this bill. Remember, at the beginning of this saga, Democrats were pushing for a clean debt ceiling increase. But what the two principals, Biden and McCarthy, have been saying over and over again is that this is what happens when you have a compromise. Look, if we let's just look at the reality of Washington right now. You have a House controlled by Republicans, you have a Senate controlled by Democrats, and you have a White House occupied by a Democrat. That means there's going to be, need to be some sort of compromise in Washington when you talk about these high stakes negotiations. And that's what McCarthy and Biden came to this weekend. They've been open that they're not thrilled and it's not everything that they would have wanted. It's not their ideal piece of legislation, but they're saying that the alternate of defaulting on U.S. loans and, and having the country's first ever default would be more catastrophic than passing this piece of legislation. So that's how they're pitching it to uh, to 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 their lawmakers, we'll just have to see how the vote shakes out tomorrow. But, but Michael, what do you make of that framing? Because some people say that's an inaccurate portrayal of what's actually going on, that there was not a necessity to have this debt ceiling crisis, that it's a manufactured crisis by conservatives who are trying to extract cuts that they weren't able to get in the course of the legislative process, that the debt ceiling has been raised innumerable times under Republican presidencies, that this is um, trying to you know, negotiate what couldn't be done legislatively and at the expense of working people and that there is not a cons the, 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 the kind of fiction that there is not a, a consensus among Americans in favor of a number of policies that could have really raised raised um, money for the, the U.S. government and also cut spending, for, uh, principally cutting military spending and taxing the rich. Uh, the majority of Americans support a billionaire's tax, for example, but those kinds of programs aren't on the table. Is it accurate to say that there is a constrained framing of what's going on here that is obscuring some real consensus that exists in the United States and the unwillingness of both political parties to actually deliver for working Americans? Well, look, I think that the way that Speaker McCarthy and President Biden are seeing this is that Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has said that the U.S. could default if the debt limit is not raised by June 5th. That's on Monday. And I know congressional leaders up here, particularly Republican leadership, they have because there have been some conservatives who have questioned what would happen if we went over that X date, what would happen if the borrowing limit was not increased. But we've seen President uh, we've seen 
Republican leaders, specifically those Republican negotiators who worked on this deal, say on a number of occasions that they trust Janet Yellen, that Janet Yellen has the experience and that she, she has the, uh, the intelligence to know when this X date is going to come and what's going to have to happen with the borrowing limit. So that's been the, the, the state of play and the, the perspective that lawmakers are coming at this from. So whether or not uh, they, they think that the deal is, is strong enough for their constituents or enough for for the American people, uh, they have recognized that there is a deadline here and that experts and analysts, administration officials had been warning on a number of occasions what would happen if the U.S. barreled over that X date. So that's the way that they've been coming at it and saying, okay, this is the deal that we have. There are some sweeteners in there for both sides of the aisle. There are some provisions in there that can get Democrats and Republicans on board. Now it's just a math game. Now they need to sell it to their lawmakers and sell it to their constituents to get enough support to pass it through both chambers, get it signed by President Biden and avoid that default on Monday. Because again, that is what Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has warned of. And that is the mindset that lawmakers are coming to this from. Right. From the Republican side, I, I doubt this is going to appease this deal. Um, conservative uh, constituents who wanted more serious cuts to government spending, um, you know, winning on uh, IRS funding is, uh, I guess that's probably the most significant ideological victory for conservatives. The work requirements is something, you know, lawmakers wanted, but we're not going to balance the budget on that, um, it, you know, I'm seeing a, a lot of Republicans who say they're going to vote uh, against it, including Representative uh, Nancy Mace, for instance, you know, just railing against this deal on Twitter, saying, you know, this is basically going to, you know, this only slightly claws back pandemic era uh, growth of, of government. So it's, uh, uh, you, you described it as a sweetener. I, 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 I see how, you know, only and maybe people in Washington happy with it, but no one else. And Michael, aren't isn't isn't it the case that Republicans can only lose what two two votes here, and that there is there is this McCarthy block of holdouts that we saw make a big fuss, a big a lot of trouble for Republicans back in January. You know what 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 are the the votes looking like here, and how many can Republicans uh, lose? Yeah, so this is a different type of vote that we're going to see shake out as opposed to previous votes in this Congress. And that's because lawmakers are going to be voting on a compromise that was struck between Biden and McCarthy. So there's an expectation that a number of Democrats are going to come on board and support this piece of legislation. In fact, we've already seen some come on board and say that they will vote for this, saying that, listen, they're not thrilled with the provisions in there, that they could write the legislation themselves. This is not what they would have come out with. But nonetheless, this was the best deal that President Biden could negotiate, given the situation. And with the deadline creeping up on them, they are planning to vote on it. But you guys are absolutely correct. There are a number of conservative lawmakers and a number of liberals even who are frustrated by this deal. Conservatives are not happy with that, are not happy with how far it goes. They don't think it's aggressive enough. And liberals are frustrated with how much is actually in this piece of legislation. So look, going into this Democratic and Republican leadership, we're basically aware that the most conservative in the Republican Party and the most progressive in the Democratic Party were unlikely to vote for this legislation. But the bipartisan nature of it gives them the ability to lose uh, those people on the wings of the party, so to say, and rely on a hodgepodge of moderate voter of moderate lawmakers who will in the end of the day likely come out and support this legislation just yesterday democrats had a big boost in this venture when the leadership for the new democrats coalition which is a center-left organization up on capitol hill that has almost 100 lawmakers in it the leadership of that group endorsed the legislation 
calling on Congress to pass it as quickly as possible. That's a type of lawmaker that that leadership is going to have to be relying on, ones that are in the middle, more moderate lawmakers. When you talk about Republicans, typically they're not able to lose more than four or five members on any given vote, on a partisan vote. But this is expected to be a bipartisan vote since it's on an agreement that was made between Biden and McCarthy. So even if you lose those conservatives and a couple liberals on the left, likely a moderate uh, a moderate uh, crop of lawmakers will be able to carry this over the finish line. Mm. Mm. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, Robbie, what's on your radar today? So Twitter is in the midst of a transformation, you've probably noticed. It is becoming more of a right-leaning news platform. And this will have profound consequences for the debate about Section 230, the federal statute that shields websites from some liability created by users, which effectively allows the Internet to function as a lightly restricted space. Let me explain. Elon Musk purchased Twitter, as you know, last year with the stated goal of making the site more hospitable to all kinds of political expression. But Musk is himself increasingly associated with the right. On Wednesday, Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announced his bid for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination during a Twitter Spaces live event alongside Elon Musk, who's an avowed supporter of DeSantis. Now, Musk's Twitter is also attracting top conservative talent. After acrimoniously parting ways with Fox News, conservative superstar Tucker Carlson declared he would relaunch his show on Twitter. The Daily Wire, a conservative media empire, recently decided to release all of its podcast videos on the site as well. Quote, if Elon Musk stands by his commitment to make Twitter a home for free speech and delivers on monetization opportunities and more sophisticated analytics for content creators, I imagine we will invest even more into the platform. That was Daily Wire CEO Jeremy Boring talking about it. Now, neither The Daily Wire nor Carlson appear to have special deals with Musk, who has said that they will be bound to the same rules as anyone else posting content on the site. But consider Musk's situation with respect to Carlson and compare it to the host's previous relationship with Fox News. Here's where it gets interesting. Because after all, Carlson's departure from Fox News followed the resolution of the company's legal dispute with Dominion Voting Systems. Dominion sued Fox, arguing that its programming had been defamatory. Guests who appeared on Fox News' show, including Carlson's, were accused of making false statements about Dominion. Now, under traditional defamation law, Fox News was liable for statements on Carlson's show. But Twitter is not. Here's the point. As an online platform, Twitter cannot be sued, in most cases, for its user speech. That's the entire point of Section 230, to empower websites to craft whatever speech policies are best for them without forcing them to incur risk. Uh, if we didn't have Section 230, social media sites would have to moderate content far more aggressively. I mean, imagine if Facebook and Twitter could be sued for user speech, well, then they wouldn't be able to let users post at will without approval or without review. Jennifer Huddleston, a technology policy research fellow at the Cato Institute, tells me that, quote, one advantage of Section 230 is it allows different platforms to try different models of online content moderation to serve specific audiences. Now, she says we've, quote, recently seen this with Elon Musk changes to Twitter's content moderation rules in ways that create new opportunities for conservative news content. 
Now, at least prior to Musk's Twitter takeover, this underlying reality had actually vexed some on the right, leading Republicans, including former President Donald Trump, Senator Josh Hawley, Senator Ted Cruz, many others. They have alleged unfairness, arguing that social media sites do not deserve this liability shield if they operate in a politically biased manner. Quote, with Section 230, tech companies get a sweetheart deal that no other industry enjoys. That was Josh Hawley. While Republicans have railed against Section 230 for empowering social media sites to moderate too much content, Democrats have criticized it for the opposite reason. They want to punish Meta, Twitter, Google, etc. for not censoring more content. Senator Elizabeth Warren has proposed various schemes to make the sites more liable for user content on the theory that this would force the companies to take down more alleged right-wing misinformation to take action with greater vehemence. Now, here's my prediction. If Twitter becomes the new home for right-leaning content, Republicans will have to rethink their ire towards Section 230 because Twitter cannot exist without it. Democrats, on the other hand, will become much more vocal about the need to rein in tech and subject the platforms to the same liability standards as non-internet publishers. They will cast Section 230 as a giant loophole that allows Musk to evade responsibility for Carlson's speech. They will say that misinformation, the great crisis of our age, according to democratic thinking, cannot be stopped as long as the platforms themselves are immune. Section 230, of course, provides protection to everyone who wishes to express themselves online. It's the reason that the Internet has remained such a liberating, freewheeling place. Repealing or replacing it would risk damaging the very foundations of the largely unfettered discourse that exists on social media. As Huddleston says, Section 230 has been critical to protecting the speech of all users online by allowing platforms to carry user-generated content without the fear of business-ending litigation as a result of how a user uses the platform. The result is that a variety of voices, including conservative news voices, have more opportunities to connect with their audience thanks to online platforms." End quote. Nevertheless, expect these foundations to come under even more strenuous attack from politicians and the mainstream media as Twitter becomes the right's new home. That's my prediction. Liberals, Democrats, and the mainstream media will eventually realize that while you could sue Fox News for the things Tucker Carlson says and does while he had a show on that channel, once he moves his show to Twitter, no one will be able to sue the website or its owner, Elon Musk, and that will make them, liberals, Democrats, the mainstream media, very angry and even more paranoid about throttling free speech on the Internet. Just my prediction that this kind of, because um, there's been an alliance, honestly, for the last few years. You're just as likely to hear criticism of this Internet regulation, Section 230, from Democrats as you are from Republicans. Republicans are mad at, big, you know, break up big tech. They're biased against us, that kind of thing. Again, a criticism that never really made a lot of sense from my perspective, because even though you can totally, you know, have questions about things um, big tech platforms have done. On the whole, social media has empowered conservatives and, and dissidents, leftists, anyone outside the mainstream consensus to speak. Um, so I think it was really self-defeating that they were going after the platforms. But now I see that, I see this polarizing because uh, if they're thinking about it for even a few seconds, Twitter, if it becomes this new home for conservative content, is, is going to be, is, it is totally reliant on this law. Yeah, I think that's, I, 
there's some merit to that theory. The only pushback that I would offer is, one, of course, Tucker Carlson or anybody else on Twitter or elsewhere has the power to be sued for defamation in their personal capacity. Yep. This yep. is what happened to Alex Jones. He paid a huge multi-million dollar lawsuit out uh, because of you know lying about the murder of those children and all of that. So that's still on the table. Um, Absolutely. And two, part of what was going on in Dominion was even, even traditional publishers are largely insulated from the kinds of lawsuits that we saw in Dominion, except for that there was this was just a, a case with an overwhelming amount of kind of unprecedented evidence that behind the scenes Fox knew there was an inside opinion versus an outside opinion, and there was a, with knowledge and intent to put views on the air that the people who were hosting those shows or who were working at Fox News from the top on down knew not to be true or that they didn't personally believe. And that's why people felt like that was a stronger case than most and likely why there was ultimately a settlement. Um, so all of that being said, I do think that you're right that it's likely that Democrats or liberals are going to continue to have an appetite for attacking platforms that they feel are promoting views that are not in line with their own. And it's also worth saying that I don't think this is necessarily super new, as there was a lot of reporting about um, uh, YouTube in particular having an algorithm mm -hmm. that pushed, especially kids seem to be the concern, down certain kind of extremist rabbit holes. There was a conversation about how liable they should be, given that they have some control over the algorithm. And I think that there's been some nuanced, um, there's been some nuanced thinking from people like Zephyr Teachout, who broadly would uphold most of Section 230, but ask some questions about the extent to which some of these websites are starting to act like publishers in the traditional mm -hmm. sense. And if you are acting like a publisher, not just hosting all the information that comes, but amplifying some of the information, de-amplifying some of the other information, censoring some of the information, promoting some of the other information, at what point do you start to act like the New York Times with an editor, et cetera, that should be responsible for the content on your site. Right, but a lot of people make the mistake of saying, because you need to change section, so you can, th right, you can think section 230 should be changed. Some people make the mistake, of, particularly on the conservative side, have done, said, well, if you're acting, if you're doing the things you described, then you're acting like a publisher, you no longer get this protection. Like, actually, the statute specifically gives you this protection in the case you do all those things. You can say it should be changed, yeah. Yeah. but that's different from saying they're violated. Like, the statute specifically yeah. says, if you do all those things, you are not suddenly transformed yeah, into so, a publisher to take so, on. I mean, that's a, that's a really important point, because so Zephyr Teachout says, I would repeal yeah. parts of 230, but that's yeah. that is exactly why. But that I, I think it's worth noting that everyone who says they want to, you know, repeal some aspect of Section 230 isn't necessarily a kind of anti-free speech zealot yeah. who doesn't understand the value of protecting these. I understand kinds that of it, the only criticism really of Section 230 that I think I understand is that it, it is true that. If you're a, the internet component mm -hmm. gets a, the platform, because this isn't just a protection for like internet, it, it's for the internet part of any company. Right. Um, but it is like a book publisher doesn't have this same kind of protection. Honestly, I would just expand the protection to traditional publishers as well. I don't love defamation and liability as, as, as concepts overall. Um, I'm a free speech extremist, radical zealot. So that would be how, if you think it's so unfair, I wouldn't, that's how I would square the circle. Do you but. think there would be any responsibility if you found out one day that YouTube or Facebook, pick your platform, mm -hmm. decided that it was going to push, let's say, pro-Nazi content or push some kind of lefty extremism that was telling kids to go out and build Molotov cocktails and bomb police stations, mm -hmm. whatever it is 
that you don't want people to do. If, if a website decided to promote that kind of content, do you think there should be any liability for harms that uh, accrue? If they're, if they're advocating direct, in, in, with your latter example, that, you know, advocating direct violence, that might run afoul well, they're of not advocating legitimate for it. criminal. But that, um, they're not advocating for it. They're just algorithmically promoting, putting people toward other folks' content. So again, here's the situation. I think you should take it up with those people then. Yeah. That's well, my view. That's, that's, that's the question. It's a hard question. More rising right after this. Gun violence is once again at the forefront of national politics because this Memorial Day weekend got underway. We saw a slew of violent incidents with guns at the center. This left at least 16 people dead, very unfortunately, and dozens more injured. In Hollywood, Florida, at least nine people, including young children, were injured after shots rang out. Here's our friends at News Nation discussing the matter. I just actually spoke to someone who was here when that shooting happened. She took cover. She went and got safe, got to safety. Uh, but here's what we know this morning. Eight out of those nine people that were involved in this shooting are stable. We do know that one person, we're working to find out their condition because they underwent overnight surgery. Now, in the, in the wake of the shooting, the aftermath, a lot of it was caught on camera, and we're going to show some of it to you now. Do want to warn you. Uh, some people this morning may find it to actually be graphic, but in this video that was taken by people that were caught in the middle of this shooting, uh, you can see several laying in the sand or along the boardwalk. Uh, you see first responders with the help of regular people helping those like this here. Again, remember, this was on Memorial Day. Uh, someone who possibly was shot in the background, you see those crowds of people looking on, again, at the beach. Police say two groups got into a fight and someone pulled out a gun and then started shooting. Sorry, this video was from a, a stream camera actually showing the huge crowd. Look at that, all of those people. And then you see him take cover right here. You see him start running. Presumably that's when the gunfire started. You'll notice the dozens of them running. Uh, if you look further in the background, you see how many people were out there just for the holiday weekend. You know, the city's mayor says they had no major issues until last night and not even a beefed up police presence dedicated to increased numbers of beachgoers could stop the shooting. Hmm. And California Governor Gavin Newsom hit out at Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, tweeting, DeSantis signed a permitless carry bill in April that removes requirements for back background checks, instruction, training, and oversight until our leaders have the courage to stop bowing down to the NRA and enact common sense gun safety. This kind of senseless violence will continue. That's Gavin Newsom. But the Golden State Democrat is feeling the heat himself for tweeting this, which some are calling a tone-deaf Memorial Day tweet. Uh, it's a man with many guns himself up on a shelf climbing up to reach the books, which are out of reach, presumably a commentary on how there are more book bans or there's the perception that there's a more bigger interest in book bans than any kind of common sense gun legislation on the part of Republicans. What do you make of this, Robbie? Well, I think the violence is uh, terrible. Uh, you know, we don't know the details precisely of everything that was going on. Obviously, in the Florida case and also, I think, in the uh, Chicago case, um, it was a, a groups of what I presume to be younger people, um, some kind of fight, feuding with each other. Again, you don't know whether uh, the, how many guns there were involved, um, whether they were legally owned by the people who had them, whether any kind of background check type 
thing would have stopped them from getting them, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I, you know, I don't, I, I don't have a lot of personal affection for the NRA necessarily, but again, we don't really know that legislation that specifically the NRA has thwarted really has anything to do with this. Um, but look, I, I mean, the, these things are becoming constant. Um, I understand people's, you know, fearing for safety, you know, disputes breaking out. I mean, this is this is the problem with guns. Dis people are always fights happen. There, people argue, get mad at each other. It's happened outside my apartment last night. I was bringing my dogs back in for a walk, and a couple was fighting and starting to get physical with each other, but they. Didn't, presumably didn't have weapons, so they were just kind of pushing each other. It was still—it was bad. The police showed up pretty immediately mm -hmm. um, and were right to do so. But, uh, but you know, can you—and and you want to prevent situations like that from escalating to violence, so you want people, you know, who are going to use guns in a dangerous way or, you know, possibly hurting bystanders, as I think was the case in some of these, um, with, you know, a child or, or children being hit. Mm -hmm. You don't want them to have access to guns. At the same time, most people— who have guns don't behave that way or carry them safely or don't carry them on them at all and how can we design a policy that constructively prohibits um, people from using guns recklessly and dangerously without infringing on the rights of people who are not doing anything wrong with their guns to still have them this well, is the whole problem i mean that's what it means to have a government and to live in a society is that every free, every every right that we have is constrained in some way so that we can have a safer environment that inerts the benefit of the maximum amount of people. And we all make these decisions and we calibrate and recalibrate as we run a society. But the idea that any right is unrestrained completely doesn't exist for any of the other rights in the Bill of Rights or, any, or anything. And it doesn't exist currently for gun rights. Obviously, there are laws about when how, who can have guns, just like there's time, place, and manner restrictions on speech and the like. So I think the real conversation should be not whether or not we can absolutely not infringe on the rights of gun owners, but whether or not there is a growing consensus that more has to be done, even if it does in some small ways, in some incremental ways, infringe on the rights of gun owners if it means that more children don't get killed or, or shot at at the beach Memorial Day weekend. And in fact, there was a poll that came out last week on the uh, one-year anniversary of the Uvalde uh, shooting, which showed that most Americans say curbing gun violence is more important than gun rights. And I don't think that's an argument against the Second Amendment as a whole or banning gun rights. And of course, substantially, most gun owners don't do these kind of horrible things, and they're using their, you know, right, you know, um, shotguns mm -hmm. for hunting and things like that. But there is still a lot of pushback from gun owners about the kind of legislation that majorities of Americans agree should limit the use of uh, handguns and automatic guns in particular, which tend to be used in these kinds of crimes. And there also is some concern that there are, you know, places like Chicago, which are often pointed to as having a lot of gun violence, and they do have a lot of gun violence, but there is this mixed bag of approaches where less than half of all guns in Chicago originate in Illinois. They come from all of these other states which with much um, less strict gun laws. So then what do you do when we live in a country with a federal system where even if one tr state tries very very hard to do something about what's happening at its own borders, there is still the ability for guns um, to come across the border and have an effect on local populations. Right. I, I would put it a little differently. I'd say, what what is the 
you want a policy to be minimally infringing. Obviously, you're right. There's not total absolute rights. Courts have recommend, recommend, uh, recognized some limits on the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, other. Some of, sometimes they recognize limits that I don't think philosophically should exist or I don't agree with their interpretation. But yes, there are to pri the price of living in a society is some limitations on rights. Um, we want to have a policy that is minimally uh, infringing on people's rights who are law-abiding and aren't harming anyone and that would actually have some effect in reducing crime. And again, I point to the fact that you don't, we already don't have a lot of enforcement of the gun laws that we do have. Um, we, we have so many crimes being committed with illegal guns where the person who had the gun already should not, there, there's already gun control for that person. It's just not being, they're, they're not being put in prison. They're not being arrested. They're not having their weapons confiscated. Um, if you're not going to enforce what we already Wait, have, then how do we get to the people? Are, we have to have a new law to disarm people. We're already sorry, not but, doing but that. The argument isn't that people who are caught up in the criminal justice system are knowingly possessing illegal firearms and the police just don't have an interest in doing anything about it. I think the That's problem, exactly the problem, I think. What, what is the case where the police know that a felon has a firearm and are choosing not to do anything about the firearm in their possession. No, no, no. but you need to do, <laughs> you're not doing like routine, like stop and frisk type things, right? Are not, are not popular. They're not popular with me either because well, I'm a civil they're libertarian. Not popular. They're, I mean, they were deemed what, to be unconstitutional because they're infringements of well, people's right. individual rights. Well, that's what we're talking about, right. So <laughs> the, the, the question is whether or not they should be doing things like what were implemented in Australia after they had a mass shooting that devastated the country. They decided to pay people to do a recall of guns that substantially basically ended shootings of that sort in the country in their entirety. Now, I know that this is going to seem overwhelming, like a bridge too far for a lot of people. I understand that. But when you have more guns than Americans circulating in our country, which is true, you are going to have a significant problem keeping people who are violent and want to cause harm to others from accessing those guns. And it's not clear to me how you get at the root of the problem without doing something about the sheer volume of weapons that exist in this country. Right, but I'm not sure what can be done about that unless there's going to be more searching of people's homes and confiscating and door-to-door -door and intensely policing and monitoring um, uh, the parts of the population that are disproportionately responsible for gun crimes, which raises all sorts of ugly and, as you said, Un potentially or just abjectly unconstitutional practices, which we worry about, which people on the left and liberals and progressives worry about on a lot of other contexts. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, the Australian example was voluntary and it was paid, right? Well, it's voluntary, it's voluntary. But you say that, but right, uh, Second Amendment advocates have objected strongly to the idea of putting mm -hmm. together a similar plan as what happened in Australia. So again, this is interesting, this poll that shows that six in 10 say that controlling gun violence is more important than protecting gun rights. That's the highest it's been in 10 years and also includes four in 10 gun owners. So I do think a lot of gun owners are very frustrated mm -hmm. about the um, the implications on them because of what bad actors well, I know, are but doing. A people... I the American people, I think, don't have a good, uh, again, because of the, the headlines and the attention paid, for instance, to the, to the mass shootings, school shootings that are perpetrated with those very, very powerful weapons. I think it's often a support for banning or limiting those kinds of weapons, which 
what you said the, the poll is in order to you know deter or sharply limit gun violence but doing all of that because the overwhelming majority of the violence is is perpetrated with the guns e people have easy access to um, that wouldn't you know doing something about that wouldn't wouldn't bring us down very oh, much. Oh, I, I, I specifically mentioned, mentioned both handguns and automatic rifles. I think you did, but oh, I don't know in the question if the response. Well, they, they divided it out somewhat. Um, there are wide divisions, it says, on semi-automatic assault-style weapons like the AR-15. Democrats uh, support banning these weapons. 44% uh, of Democrats do. Only 13% of Republicans support banning those weapons. I'm surprised. I'm sort, of, I'm sort of surprised that it's relatively low numbers in both groups. Because, yeah. again, the, the, the articulated reason for wanting to have access to, gun right, to guns doesn't necessarily square as easily with, what, with weapons of mass murder that were designed for war. And we, you know, I, I understand the concerns. I understand that people who think a well-regulated militia is about them also being able to protect themselves against the American government and that they need to have weapons that are as powerful and able to kill as many people as weapons of war. But there are also these consequences, like right. the events that happened over the weekend. And it seems like we're getting to a point where increasingly Americans are willing to say, hey, I'll take my chances with not being able to, you know, overcome mm -hmm. the American government or whatever the concern is if it means that my kid is going to be safe at the beach on Memorial Day weekend. But I don't know. It, it seems like there's going to have to be a great deal more tragedy before we'll have any legislative movement on this. Um, so we'll continue to follow these kind of stories and give you updates about what we learned about the perpetrator uh, down in Florida. More rising right after this. Russia and Ukraine's war is raging on. This morning, drone strikes rained on both Moscow and Kiev, coming as an aerial assault on Ukraine's capital left at least one person dead. But as the war increasingly heats up, elites are saying the quiet part out loud. Here's USA director Samantha Powers displaying her dismay at the unprecedented amount of aid the U.S. is sending to Ukraine. Let's watch. One of the things that Congress has given USAID uh, since this full-scale invasion began is an unprecedented amount of money mm -hmm. in direct budget support, which sounds kind of obvious. Of course, we would do that. We want to stand with Ukraine. But it's totally unprecedented, these, this kind of scale of investment. And we're talking in, along the lines of about $15 billion in, in a sense, cash to mm -hmm. the Ukrainian government, mm -hmm. which was famously corrupt mm -hmm. you know, in, in, in past years and still has work, as you noted to do on corruption today. I don't know if we could have gotten that money out of Congress, if not for DIA. Mm -hmm. Because what DIA allows us to do is that direct budget support goes, yes, to the Ukrainian government, but then it goes to pay teachers, to pay healthcare workers, to pay first responders. And there's a digital trail. It's not you know, some official deciding this or that. It actually is going directly into the bank accounts in a manner that just, it would have been untraceable in a, in a, in a prior regime. So Editor of the Gray Zone News, Max Blumenthal, is here to weigh in. Welcome, Max. Good to see you both. So you hear Samantha Powers there explaining that Ukraine is corrupt. It is known to be one of the most corrupt countries uh, in Europe, in the world, that but for DIA, there would be a lot of difficulty getting these cash transfers to, from the United States to Ukraine because of reasonable fears of corruption. But then she characterizes it as a good thing that DIA uh, enables this workaround. Unpack this for us. What is DIA and why should we be concerned here? There are two 
points I want to make here. First is that Samantha Power is talking about aid directly from the American taxpayer to pay for Ukrainian teachers, healthcare workers, and public workers. That's after Joe Biden had denied paying for Ukrainian pensions. And this is all taking place as inflation hits the American worker. And you recently saw teachers in the LA United School District strike so they could have better wages. But meanwhile, billions are being paid directly through a shady experimental app to Ukrainian teachers. So how will this affect the American voting population to hear that their money is being stripped out of their pockets to pay Ukrainian salaries? We also saw Lindsey Graham, the biggest hawk in Congress, declare in a meeting with Vladimir Zelensky that the Ukraine war has been a good investment because we've killed a lot of Russians. So we were told all along that this was just about supplying military aid so that the U.S. could liberate Ukraine from an unprovoked Russian invasion. Now we see it's about paying Ukrainian workers and simply about throwing Ukrainian soldiers, the young, the youth of Ukraine, into a slaughterhouse to kill lots of Russians. That's not what Americans, how Americans were sold on this war. And just on that app really quickly, what I witnessed at this event overseen by USAID director Samantha Power was straight up war profiteering using the ravages of Ukraine to devise a so-called state in a smartphone that provides digital ID and government services electronically to Ukrainians, and then using that to Ukraine as a laboratory to export that to other countries where citizens have very little power, such as Zambia and Colombia and Zanzibar. Uh, <laughs> that's, another that's another purpose of this war, laboratory Ukraine. Let's play an encounter that uh, you had, Max, with Ukraine's ambassador to the U.S., Oksana Markarova. Uh, let's watch this. This event was about profiting off of war, turning Ukraine into a laboratory, the ruins of Ukraine into a laboratory for the fourth industrial revolution. You're absolutely um, getting wrong. Ukrainians you're all in a digital. Now you're not interested in the, in yeah, the yeah, answer, please. And can you tell me why my my colleague Anya Parker was on a kill your interior ministry maintains a kill list of journalists and my partner here, Anya Parnfil, is on it. Unlike uh, in Ukraine, you can't kill and ban your opposition here. Our Nazis actually have to hide behind the government, not serve in the government. Looks like you were having a really enjoyable evening. Uh, what was going on there, Max? <laughs> well, uh, me and my very close colleague at the Gray Zone, Anya Parampil, were trying to be the two only reporters at this event because there were not any reporters asking any critical questions. Kara Swisher, who probably was paid a handsome fee, was on stage conducting softball interviews with uh, people who are in, directly engaged in a war, in a hot war. And so we, I questioned the Ukrainian ambassador to DC about this event being an exercise in war profiteering, number one. And then I wanted to ask her about the inclusion of Anya and my colleague Aaron Mate, as well as uh, recently added nightclub comedian Jimmy Dore to the Ukrainian government's kill list. This is a kill list known as Mirodvoretz or Peacemaker that has seen hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of Ukrainian citizens, Russians, even children, and American citizens, including everyone from Henry Kissinger to Roger Waters placed on a kind of blacklist 
and several of the people who've appeared on this list, including the Ukrainian journalist Olez Buzina, have been assassinated by death squads in the streets of Ukraine. Daria Dugina, the uh, daughter of the Russian nationalist philosopher, was killed in a car bomb by Ukrainian intelligence services outside Moscow. Her name was marked liquidated on that list. So I wanted to ask the Ukrainian ambassador about this list that my colleagues are on, American journalists are on. And she she walked away. I was trying to give her a chance to respond, but she walked away. And that's been the Ukrainian government's response so far. We've heard nothing from so-called press freedom NGOs, however. Mm. Max, your reporting in this context and elsewhere really is unique and I think valuable to a lot of our listeners. I want to make sure that Thank we you. really understand what's going on with this DIA app, though, in particular. Uh, I'm reading at The Guardian that it's an app that's installed on 70% of all smartphones. I know that you did a Twitter thread yesterday that got a lot of traction that explained some of the surveillance impl implications of this app uh, being so... Uh, widely installed. What, what is it supposed to do? What is the stated goal of the app? And what are your concerns about what it might ultimately be used for? Well, just imagine as an American citizen or a citizen of any uh, purported liberal democracy in the West, if you're watching this right now, if your entire state, your interaction with government took place in a smartphone, uh, this is, you're living, you're literally living in a digital prison. Uh, this and, and imagine that your state is using central bank digital currency and can cut off funds to you, as it as we saw the Canadian government do uh, against supporters of the Canadian truckers protesting vaccine mandates in Ottawa. This app is for export. It's using Ukraine as a laboratory to accelerate this process. And so far in Ukraine, it's been used to do everything from paying incentives to get people to take the jab uh, to having them register their vaccination status, to having them um, apply for reconstruction of their homes damaged in the war, to being able to report on their neighbors who they suspect of being Russian collaborators. And we've seen video after video of accused Russian collaborators who are Ukrainian citizens be killed and thrown in ditches by neo-Nazi forces attached to the Ukrainian military. This was advertised at this event overseen by the USAID director, that it's a snitching app. So I find that highly disturbing. It's an app being tested in a country where the entire political opposition has been banned, where all opposition media has been banned, and where politicians, activists, and average citizens are being arrested, disappeared, and even killed for having a different opinion. And just to steel man this a little bit, some people might say, well, any new emerging technology can be used to do all the bad things that we can currently do under an existing technology. If you want to snitch, you can call, you can email, you can inform on your colleagues or friends. People do that already. Um, and that as long as alternative mo modes of payment, cash, credit cards, et cetera, or alternative modes of filing your taxes, which is something that you can do on this app, alternative modes that are pre-existing continue to exist, that there are upsides to having apps like these because of convenience, and that the downsides are not um, endemic to the app itself. What do you say to people who might think of this as just another kind of um, uh, panic around a new technology, the likes of which we've seen since the invention of uh, fire? Well. I guess they didn't live through the pandemic where a, a large slice of society was temporary, temporarily frozen out of public participation through the paper vaccine passport, 
which if digitized would simply make them make it impossible for them to travel. That was all being tested in Eastern Europe, the digital vaccine passport, digital ID. But we also have to consider geolocation. These, I, I highly doubt that the DIA app is just being used to allow the good guys in Ukraine to snitch on the bad guys. It's also, it could also be used to track young men who do not want to be conscripted and sent to the front lines to die in a slaughterhouse like Bakhmut. And we've seen video after video filmed by average Ukrainians of men of military age being rounded up and thrown into vans by military police to be taken to the front to fight and die. Uh, this, so, so essentially what you're looking at, if your entire interaction with your government and with society takes place through a smartphone, when your government is using central bank digital currency, not blockchain, you are living in a digital prison. Hmm. You know, it's interesting uh, in that it, you allude to the you know the corruption and the the experimentation going on in Europe and even in that clip we played of Samantha Power she kind of she she does nod to well you know Ukraine was a corrupt government it didn't stop suddenly being corrupt even though we're giving it you know all this all this money um, why why does that prompt no self reflection among <laughs> U.S. officials elites you know the people who still support what's going on in Ukraine and, and supported Afghanistan Iraq Libya all down the line that uh, yeah these are corrupt governments they get our money and then we you know we end up empowering sometimes groups that we don't have control over sometimes people end up with weapons that we didn't want them to get um, but and there's no oops I guess we'll just do it again. It's amazing. Samantha Power was sitting right next to Mikhailo Fedorov, who is the first head of the Ministry of Digital Transformation, which was created by Zelensky in 2019 to advance this Davos-centric fourth industrial revolution. Fedorov presided over Ukraine's partnership with FTF, FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried's uh, CryptoCon, and $60 million at least flowed from FTX investors into Ukraine through the Ministry of Digital Transformation. And we have no idea where that money went. FTX investors look like, it looks like they were hosed and it was laundered in Ukraine. I mean, who knows where it went? But Samantha Power sitting there saying, well, we were able to get $15 billion out of Congress through this app presided over by the same ministry that partnered with FTX. And we know that it's going to the right places and the right people because it leaves a digital footprint. Where can we see the digital footprint of our, our tax dollars? We can't. Yeah, and I'm curious, Max, I, I know that a lot of this framing and framing that I've engaged in as well is that it's particularly unethical given the domestic problems that America is facing, homelessness crisis, um, you know, crime, uh, lack of medical uh, care, uh, et cetera, et cetera, that so much money is being very easily spent, it seems, abroad. I, but I wonder sometimes when people are making these arguments, it does strike me that there is a lack of an appetite for domestic spending both on both sides of the aisle, and we're seeing that a little bit in these debt ceiling negotiations. Are you ever concerned that this, I think, true and accurate argument that there is more appetite to spend money abroad than it is at, that there is at home is leading people to believe that there is a real appetite, even among anti-Ukraine war, anti-war advocates, to actually do more domestic spending to help working-class Americans? Or is it just being used as an argument against Ukraine without any real interest and in following through and delivering for working people here at home? 
I mean, just look at the debt negotiations and how the military budget was this sacred cow that could not be touched and how little pressure the Democrats, including the progressive Democrats, put on the Republicans to start stripping away at this now close to $900 billion military budget. Actually, uh, Winslow Wheeler, former head of the Government Accountability Office under George H.W. Bush, tabulates it at $1.5 trillion. That's if you include uh, inflation and veterans benefits. And the Republicans wouldn't touch this. They only want to touch social spending that goes to the poor and working people of America. Uh, so where and where does the military budget go? A CBS investigation, not exactly the most anti-war outlet, hmm. found that over half of it goes to government contractors who are overcharging the military. And yet Congress won't touch this. So, of course, we should be talking about domestic spending. It starts with domestic spending. And it's and, and, and the, the one of the major reasons that the U.S. is in Ukraine and that at this event I went to in D.C., that negotiations and peace were not discussed once is because our economy runs on military Keynesianism. No offense to Keynes, but that's the best way I can characterize it. And what do you mean by that? That How so much of our economy depends on the military budget going to the Beltway bandits here in Washington, Deloitte, Booz Allen, Hamilton, Lockheed, Raytheon, and all their employees who are filling up all of these uh, luxury housing units that are being built while no new housing is being built for the poor and working class of DC. Uh, it's also the same in Texas or Colorado. So much of the economy revolves around the military budget and then there's the R&D, the research for to produce new weapons and new technology. That's what this country, so much of this country's middle class, upper middle class and even upper class depends on. And to be in this war in Ukraine puts that economy on overdrive, just as the Afghanistan war did as well. Max, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump are heading to Iowa this week, separately, of course. The two 2024 GOP presidential nominees will be campaigning in the Hawkeye State with DeSantis' visit scheduled from Tuesday to Wednesday and Trump arriving Thursday. DeSantis' first rally will be held at an evangelical church in West Des Moines, and Trump is set to arrive for a meeting with pastors on Thursday, News Nation reports. Twitter CEO Elon Musk responded to chatter about Ron DeSantis' Twitter 2024 campaign announcement last week. Musk tweeted on Friday, a lot of noise about Ron DeSantis announcing and discussing his presidential bid on this platform. But you know what is it noise? Setting an all-time record for fundraising, worth considering for announcements in general. That was in reply to a tweet from CBS Miami saying, quote, Governor DeSantis raises $8.2 million in first 24 hours after launching presidential campaign. However, re readers added uh, notes to Musk's own tweet saying that it is factually incorrect and Trump had raised $25 million in 2019. Even removing larger donors, it's still $14 million. Furthermore, half of Governor DeSantis's donations did come via a donor event that started just before the or advance uh, in advance of the Twitter space. President Joe Biden uh, actually raised $6.3 million, topping DeSantis's online donations. Also on the topic of 2024, a new Republican primary poll from McLaughlin and Associates has Donald Trump with 54% of the vote and DeSantis's with 16. In a head-to-head, -head, Trump takes 69% and DeSantis takes 30%. 
So uh, a, a reminder, always important, that DeSantis has a long way to go um, in terms of these poll numbers. That said, he is such a less well-known figure than Donald Trump. You could plausibly argue that he, you know, he has more of a, he has room to grow. Uh, you could Donald argue Trump. it, but also, I, I, you got to look at what's happening on the other side of the aisle with RFK Jr. polling, by some accounts, at 20 percent, an infinitely less known name than Ron DeSantis, who is a governor of one of the most popular newsmaking states in the country. You think RFK Jr. is less well-known than Ron DeSantis? I mean, he's a Kennedy. And, and a the idea— People know those, those <laughs> the, three letters together. The idea uh, of there together. being a Kennedy is, I think, very well-known. The idea that there's an RFK Jr. out there that wants to run for president and has the— Kind of capacity, interest, ability to do so, you know, any kind of legs under his campaign is a very different thing. And I think that it is very telling that the Democratic Party is unwilling to take RFK Jr. seriously at all, when in many ways Ron DeSantis is a creation of a media that is very, very, is benefiting, I should say, from a media that is very eager to have some real challenger to Donald Trump. And in Donald Trump's words, is a person who might not even be in the political discourse, but for his own intervention back in 2018. Hmm. That's an interesting—I'm so not sure I agree with that. I think probably neither of them are, are comparing RFK Jr. and Ron DeSantis. You know, we're political people, so we, you know, we can go through and name a lot of the senators and governors, et cetera. Most people, they know big names. They know who Joe Biden is. They know who Donald Trump is. They probably don't know who either person is. They know of the Kennedy family. Mm -hmm. um, I think DeSantis is just beginning to, to get—to have his— debut on the national stage. Well, I can't wait to watch it. How do you think this shakeout, uh, this uh, meetup meet up, or near miss in Iowa is going to shake out between these two? So tr DeSantis is, is right now, his strategy is to be to Trump's right, uh, particularly on COVID, kind of social issues, wokeness-ish stuff. I think, I think he wants to court evangelicals. I think he wants to win over evangelicals, say, like, Trump, I know he delivered for you, but he's, he's has questions about abortion, how far that's gone and everything. And you weren't ever really comfortable with him anyway, right? He's not a family person. Mm -hmm. I am. And, uh, and then COVID for the more, you know, less religiously inclined Republican primary voters. I think that's the DeSantis strategy. Um, you saw him talking. Uh, he was talking on a, a conservative uh, news radio program over the weekend. DeSantis saying that, and, and he laid out his strategy very clearly, saying like, you know, I loved what Trump was doing in 2016, 2017, uh, but he, it went off the rails, and, and then he, you know, he really got rolled on COVID, and it's not the same person as it was back in 2016, and that's why I'm stepping up. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, that's his pitch. Not. Trump is a maniac. I hate him. Like you can't. That doesn't. Mm -hmm. That doesn't work for Republican primary voters. Um, that Trump. The, the pitch is that Trump himself, uh, uh, you know, wandered off the path of the MAGA policies mm -hmm. that Trump outlined. And, and do you think that's going to be effective? Because we we saw after yeah. the Twitter launch um, in Donald Trump's statements, he tried to reclaim some of that COVID ground, pointing out that Ron DeSantis had closed down beaches and complied with some of those early COVID policies with everyone else. Now. You can make the case that he corrected course more quickly than other mm -hmm. states, for sure. But Donald Trump doesn't seem to be afraid of getting right in there and making direct attacks on turf, which, as you described, uh, Ron DeSantis perceives himself to be stronger on than Donald Trump. As you've said, DeSantis needs to complete the trifecta by also 
on foreign policy matching the mood of the Republican primary voters on Ukraine. And, you you know, you've been critical, I agree with you, that he dodged that a little bit in the uh, Twitter spaces. On a, he's done a, a better job, I think, at, on other occasions in spelling out, um, you know, how his, uh, how his, what his foreign policy would be. Has he done a better job? Because um, we also watched that interview that he did on Fox News with uh, uh, Gowdy after the Twitter spaces, in which he was asked very directly about his feelings about the war in Ukraine. And he kind of deflected into a conversation about how what the real problem is is the woke there, military. He, uh, he answered questions. I think maybe he submitted his answers to Tucker when Tucker was grilling. Um, so was before grilling. all yeah, of yeah, these yeah. events. Before this well, that seems stuff. like a little bit of a backslide then, because he yeah. did get in trouble for trying to, I think, uh, occupy some middle ground there. Describe, when he described uh, Ukraine as a territorial dispute, he got a lot of pushback from the blob, as it were, from establishment right. members of both parties. And I think in this climate, people like RFK Jr., people like Donald Trump get a lot of respect historically because even when they receive that kind of pushback, they stick the landing. It seems like Ron DeSantis dabbled in those waters, got the pushback, and immediately has retreated to a place where he's deflecting from any substantive questions about what he would do in Ukraine. If he wants to inherit Trump's voters, he needs to have the perception of taking on the blob the way Trump clearly had that perception. I'm not sure reality ended up matching the Absolutely. rhetoric for Trump, but yeah. certainly uh, at Trump's uh, 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 speeches about how he's not going to listen to the military-industrial complex. I mean, he said that about Afghanistan and Iraq. He was not afraid to say Iraq was a total waste of time and we need to get out of Afghanistan, something most people, most Republicans feel is the case, but you like weren't allowed to say. You, had, you were afraid to say. Uh, that kind of boldness is what DeSantis needs. And he, yeah. he's a little bit, he's still very stiff and very scripted. Um, again, I think he's much more comfortable talking about COVID, you know, despite the, you know, some of the things you've pointed out, um, and, and really that's where he gets the most favorable uh, conservative media coverage. Yeah, we'll see how this stuff. plays out in Iowa. I would want to not be followed immediately by Donald Trump. I think I would want to be the cleanup act and not mm -hmm. the uh, opener, but we'll see how that all plays out. A new article in the Washington Post uh, writes that Biden's circle is seeking to boost Vice President Kamala Harris looking ahead to 2024. And this started with her role in the debt talks when President Biden sat in an Oval Office meeting with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on May 16th to discuss the debt ceiling. Harris sat in between the two men. A couple days later, Harris was on a teleconference call with elected officials and leaders urging a deal to be reached. Mm, Biden and his campaign team are reportedly confident that they can match Trump in 2024, but are aware of the fact that their challenger could be more difficult if Trump is not the nominee, according to Politico. Also, here's what President Biden had to say when asked about a president pardoning Trump. Did you see that Ron DeSantis said that if he became president, he would pardon Trump? Where are you on the idea of presidents pardoning Trump? Yep. It was, uh... I find this whole thing a little bit rich. Every president who basically, I don't want to say every president, but there are most, basically every president in our lifetimes has plausibly, credibly been accused of committing any number of war crimes. And every subsequent president takes the line that they are not going to uh, support any kind of move to hold them accountable mm -hmm. legally, right? That is constructively 
supporting a baseline pardon for all presidents and their presidential behavior. Now, Donald Trump is being accused of doing things outside of the office, right? P kind of personal crimes that you could argue are, are separate silly. and apart. But the idea- <laughs> You could also argue are insignificant right, compared to the like, war crimes. A hundred percent. So this idea of like right. scoffing and rolling your eyes and, and thinking that it's abs absurd or some huge dereliction of moral duty to pardon Trump, given the scale of the constructive pardons that every president has availed themselves of, it's a little rich for me. Yeah, same. Um, what do you make of the conviction the Biden White House seems to have that some non-Trump alternative, which realistically is just DeSantis, because it's going to be Trump or DeSantis, <laughs> uh, the, the DeSantis, I think you doubt a little bit that, uh, that Biden would have an easier time beating DeSantis than Trump. Um, I'm, a, I'm conflicted on it. I, I do think that there is this argument that uh, Ron DeSantis is less um, polarizing, that he, you know, he seems like a, a more normal mm -hmm. kind of Republican. I think that was the argument that was pushed forward over the last couple of years if, as people have been looking forward to 2024. I think that Ron DeSantis's behavior how forward he has been, how public he has been about the so-called Don't Say Gay bill, um, about all of these culture war issues. He went on Fox News over the weekend and said that he uh, is campaigning on ending leftism in the United States of America. At this point in American history, I feel like many liberals are as galvanized by Ron DeSantis as they are by Donald Trump. Donald Trump has shown more moderation in his statements on abortion than Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis has really been kicking the beehive in a way that I, I think makes it no longer such a clear argument that he would have more Democrats staying home and have an easier time to the White House. Hmm. He, and he's kind of created that own reality for himself by choosing this anti-woke lane, which is an explicit attack on liberals and leftists as human beings, as opposed to Donald Trump, who would flail around and say, we're going to build a wall. I'm, I'm anti making statements that are being perceived as anti-immigrant. I'm a protectionist. I'm an isolationist. Those kinds of things, but not so much. Hey, there's a group of Americans. I'm explicitly going to call them out. Donald Trump. Well, I mean, there was the first pride, pro pride president who dances to YMCA and right. you know had a, you know pride flag and events. And that's a, that's a significant contrast from Ron DeSantis. I mean, there are liberals and even leftists who find. Aspects of, again, wokeness is such a broad categorization that I find aspects of it annoying. Um, it, yeah, it, DeSantis is going all in on this to win the Republican primary. If he does do that, then he'll pivot. He's not going to talk about those things anymore. He'll talk about, you know, being a moderate, common sense, things all Americans agree on and, you know, just keep it out of schools, but you can do whatever you want, that kind of thing. Right. And we'll see if that's more palatable. Do you think he's going to be able to memory hole statements like, my goal is to, quote, destroy leftism in America? I mean, when, when, mm -hmm. when uh, President Biden said at, what was it, the State of the Union, um, He's not going to get many votes from left. But, but wait a minute. When, when, I, I when, 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 they, when the Democrats rolled out MAGA Republicans as a phrase, mm -hmm. Republicans went crazy saying, you can't attack Republican Party. You can't go after voters like that. And I substantially agree with that. I think that you have to make sure your framing is attacking politicians and politics as opposed to the average voter who may or may not identify as a mm -hmm. MAGA Republican. I similarly think saying, coming out strong, you want to be the president of all America, but you're saying you want to destroy leftism in America is a kind of attack that is not going to keep people home. I mean, Hillary called day. Hillary called like, you know, half of America I agree. her enemy I is think despicable. Of, I've written many articles um, about how that was inappropriate right. and part of her DeSantis downfall. DeSantis is calling out a specific ideology and one that 
I don't know. He, I don't know how he's defining it. You maybe you wouldn't even count as a leftist according to how he's defining it. Well, he has, he's going to have to. He's going to have to defend the plausible, many plausible interpretations of that. And a lot of Americans, whether or not it's this statement or his behavior um, in terms of encouraging these kind of boycotts, now Target is the enemy, blah, 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 blah. Sure. It's getting into a place that is, I think, really off-putting to normies. And the whole point of his campaign was that he was supposed to be the more normie version of Trump. I don't know how that's going to go for him. Well, he's got to get there first. And I would understand Biden's conviction that, I mean, they beat Trump once. So they're probably thinking they beat him once, they can do it again. However, it's hard not to think of the whole Hillary approach, which was we got to have Trump because we can beat him. And that, and they didn't. Yeah. Oh, Maybe no, would have beaten someone else, didn't beat Trump. <laughs> I think that Hillary and Trump are a, were a unique matchup in terms of the fact that Hillary's vulnerabilities and his matched so well that she couldn't really make a clean attack on his kind of uh, Wall Street ties mm -hmm. and being a big New York fixture, a corrupt fixture, someone who has made some unsavory statements about race and been sued for discrimination and things like that in the past with her super predator comments. I'm not saying there's a tit-for-tat, one-for-one parallel between those two, but it was murky enough and they were both contemptible enough to the electorate that she wasn't the avatar we need, that, 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 that the country, the Democrats needed, people who didn't like Trump needed to really land a solid blow. All right, we got to go. We'll have more rising uh, right after this. And the boycotts keep on coming. Cancel culture is on the run in the United States of America, this time reaching America's favorite pastime. The Los Angeles Dodgers baseball team is feeling heat over their decision to feature the, quote, controversial LGBTQ plus anti-Catholic activist group of queer and trans nuns known as the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence at a Pride Night event scheduled for June 16th, Fox News writes. The announcement of the event, which came earlier this month, reportedly garnered major backlash from conservative Christians. The Dodgers first rescinded the decision to feature the nuns on May 17th following backlash, but then re-invited the sisters to the Pride event. The nonprofit group Catholic Vote then launched a $1 million campaign last week calling on people to boycott the baseball team. This is, of course, in the wake of recent LGBTQ-related boycotts of Bud Light and Target. Catholic Vote President Brian Birch told Fox News on Sunday, our organization exists to give Catholics a voice, especially on fights like this where woke corporations like the Los Angeles Dodgers have decided to honor and celebrate a detestable, vile, and perverse anti-Catholic organization. The team relaunched their Christian Faith and Family Day after protests, protests over the Pride Night, which is set for July 30th, and pitcher Clayton Kershaw publicized the event, saying it would be bigger and better than it was before COVID. Now, Robbie, help me understand. I think it's fine for the Dodgers to have a Christian Faith Night. Mm -hmm. I think it's fine for them to have a Pride Night. I think there are gay Catholics. I think that there are gay people who are frustrated with the Catholic Church for saying that, you know, the, the religion explicitly, by some people's reading, says that it is wrong and against God and a sin to be gay. So having an anti-Catholic gay group doesn't seem to be to be necessarily unfair. I think they have some legitimate criticisms with the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church can feel like what it feels like. Why can't they have different nights for different constituencies at this baseball park without one group trying to dictate what all other viewers of the Dodgers team thinks or feels or wants to enjoy at the stadium. I mean, <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> I don't care at all. But 
Uh, I mean, if there are Catholics who are offended by this group, I would understand why <laughs> they dress up as nuns, which are part of people's religious faith. I mean, they're making fun of people's religious faith. Um, it, it, it doesn't matter to me, but uh, I think in other contexts this would be seen obviously as offensive even to liberals. What if they were they were rabbis, or what, what if they were making fun of Islam? What if they were all little, you know, drag Muhammads up there? Would uh, would everybody be okay with that? No, there would be probably be bomb threats made against the stadium. I don't know, but we don't have to do hypotheticals. Nice, well-meaning Christian people, the only ones you can appropriate and mock and make fun of because they're not going to hurt you no, Robbie, is how it comes across. We don't have to go into hypotheticals. There is a Catholic Christian night event, and they think that homosexuality is a sin. They, they also, they, they are literally saying these other people are sinful and against God and are going to hell. So they, they are saying that. I mean, it's not as though this is a one-sided thing. The, the people are protesting Catholicism because many of them, I think, are former Catholics or still identify as Catholics, feel rejected by the church, want things to be different. The church can obviously do and say what it wants to do and continue to say that mm-hmm. homosexuality is a sin. You know, I feel the way I feel about it, but why can't the Christians have their night? The pride people have their night. I'm sure things are said at Christian night that is very offensive to any number of people, but they're not protesting things. Or I certainly wouldn't support a protest at the existence of that that evening. Why? Are, it does seem like we're living in a world where everyone is trying to have every other person in the country agree with them entirely. I mean, they're just... They were protesting it the way anyone is protesting anything, and then they, their protest was successful. They were giving this, this group, the, the, the fake nuns, um, a community hero award. You know what's so heroic about what they're— Look, I don't—again, I don't personally care. I, I was raised Catholic. Uh, Catholic is like, a, is like the background for me. It's like my ancestry, but I'm not particularly religiously inclined. I support— same-sex marriage and gay rights and all this. I'm, I'm a social liberal, so I, I'm not coming at this from like, I, like I don't care at all. But I have a high tolerance for offense. Like I, I, I don't find things offensive in general. Oh, so you're and saying the Catholics are snowflakes? <laughs> no, I think they're. I think the position of these people is you can't you can't make fun of anyone anymore. But you can't. But it's still okay to beat up on you know somebody peeing on the crucifix is high art in this country. Uh, but you could never do that for any other religious or racial or group in any way, and it would be very problematic and I, very I bad. I hear you making that argument, Well, Robbie. that's how I would but, steal man their but position. But that's not the argument. It's true. But that is not the argument that is being made here. Um, there's okay, well, an op-ed. I can give them some advice. There's, here's the argument they should be losing. Charles They Gass- should say, my culture is not your goddamn prom dress, is what they should say. Well, it's also the nuns' culture. They are also Catholic. But the, this is, this is um, Charles Gasparino, the argument that he's making in the New York Post is uh, convoluted and not, I think, as straightforward as it um, needs to be. But he says, the Dodgers, for some reason, think inviting this Catholic offending trans queer advocacy group to its annual Pride Day celebration is good for business. I don't know that they think it's good for business or bad for business. They are having a Pride event, which I think they do believe is good for business, generally speaking. He goes on to say, sure, there will be the usual celebrations in the mainstream media about the team's embrace of diversity, but this doesn't seem like something the average fan might get behind as baseball attendance struggles to reach pre-pandemic levels and cord-cutting eats into TV revenue. So his appeal is to say that normal baseball fans don't like this sort of thing, so why have a Pride Night event that features these people? Which I would say, 
Well, most baseball fans are probably not Catholic. Most baseball fans are probably not anything because we live in a pluralistic society. So why are you against one night of having a pride event that includes these people? And there's a picture in the op-ed of an L.A. Dodgers baseball hat with a rainbow flag on it, uh, apparently making the case that this sort of outreach to targeting I mean, groups is inappropriate. <laughs> like these are like if I if I was taking I don't know if I was taking my nieces and nephews to a baseball game which is something I would never do because I don't enjoy baseball very much but and then there was like a performance of the insane clown posse or something instead I would be I would I would be like why are we but doing this? This is Pride Night. This is a Pride Night, so you can can it just be like a rainbow on a baseball cap? Or well, something? they're objecting. By by implication, they're objecting right, to I'm that as well. Because I don't care. Well, I know you're not objecting to it, but this is, these are the kind of arguments that the cons the prominent conservatives are making. That there people is like radical shrieking and anger in this country every time someone dresses up some way at a Halloween party that makes people mad. And it this is the Catholic I, Catholics are the only what, Christian groups more broadly find to mock them, find to mock their religion, and uh, and they, they're meekly objecting here. Okay. So let, let me read more of this objection like, here in the New York Post. Uh, uh, the author goes on to say, certainly not average baseball—who uh, would like this? He, that's the implication here. Certainly not average baseball fans who don't want woke politics shoved down their throat when they're trying to digest a hot dog and beer that can run them $20. I think he's setting himself up for a joke a little bit with digesting. Yeah, here we go again. Every year, the Dodgers hold something called LGBTQ plus Pride Night. There will be an award celebration, a DJ in center field, and people will indulge in some adult beverages from Pride Color Cups. My goodness, beer at a baseball game. As you might expect, he goes on to say, I prefer my sports sans this stuff, but if you're going there, this seems like a pretty innocuous way to do it. But the woke progressive movement, like the Marxist revolutionaries before them, won't stop until they have re-educated the masses into total conformity with their ideology. So again, the question is, is the Pride Night Marxist ideology imposing conformity, and if it is, why isn't the Christian night that's being held on a different night not considered to be also an imposition of beliefs upon the masses? I, I don't know if it's a Marxist imposition <laughs> on the masses, but uh, I, I don't know. I these uh, again, I'm not. <laughs> Offended, but if you were, if you're a practicing Catholic, you would offended by these costumes. I would not blame you. The way it would be offensive in any other religious context. So. Yeah, I, I think that if you want to be offended, you want to be offended. But the question isn't being offended because again, all of these people exist in this group because they are offended by the teachings of the Catholic Church. Now, again, live and let live. Mm -hmm. But. Only one person is trying to boycott and cancel the other person out of of existence in this context. You know, uh, I, I, the perpetual what? nuns are not trying to get the can't the the, the Christian yes, I'm, night. I'm sure liberal um, uh, pro LGBT people have never boycotted anybody no, before. I'm, I'm sure that they have, but today at the Dodgers Stadium, I, they, the, they fresh the, off a they the found cultural, a cake baker minute, who needs to get the cultural movement that is happening today at Dodger Stadium. And you can dodge your way out of this as many times as you want, Robbie. But today right. at Dodger Stadium and the, the the slew of boycotts that are happening across the country are because there is a concerted political effort with people like Christopher Rufo and Ron DeSantis explicitly saying he wants to lit in the leftism in the country and targeting LGBTQIA uh, pride events like the ones that are happening on okay. one night. If, any, if any political figure tries to prohibit the 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 trans nun, the the the, uh, the, uh, the cross-dressing nuns. nuns from doing their thing, I'll be the first to speak up on behalf of their free expression and First Amendment rights. But 
Okay. Uh, by the way, we should mention that the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, they describe themselves as the leading edge order of queer and trans nuns. They say, we believe all people have a right to express their unique joy and beauty. They've been around since 1979. They also issued a statement to the Dodgers saying that they are about the rescinding of the award celebration, um, saying that a full apology and explanation was given to us by the Dodgers staff, which we accept. We believe the apology is sincere because the Dodgers have worked for 10 years with our community, and as well, they have asked us to continue an ongoing relationship with them. In the future, if similar pressures from outside our community arise, our two organizations will consult and assist each other in responding alongside our colleagues at the Los Angeles LGBT Center and others from the community. Uh, we are now more closely tied with the LA Dodgers than ever before. That's, that's great. All right, you can let us know in the comments what you think about this story. We'll be reading and we'll have more rising right after this. peer-reviewed study from the Cleveland Clinic found that the risk of COVID-19 varied by the number of COVID-19 vaccine doses previously received. And the higher the number of vaccines previously received, the higher the risk of contracting COVID-19. Popular YouTuber and comedian who has been a prominent skeptic over vaccines and mandates throughout the pandemic, Jimmy Dore, tweeted, FYI, it's not a vaccine, it's a failed experiment. We are the guinea pigs. Mm -hmm. All right, take these findings with a grain of salt. But this is interesting because the first, this first came out earlier this year, I think around February, and there was a lot of pushback at that time. Part of the pushback was that it was not a peer-reviewed study. It was just what's known as a preprint. Now we're talking about this again because it has been peer-reviewed, and the parts of the study that raised a red flag to some vaccine skeptics are still there in the study. So, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So the the uh, authors of the study note that this is unexpected. Like I don't think these are people who were these are not like anti-vaccine people who were s setting out to disprove the efficacy of vaccines. And so so they're saying um, there was an association of increased risk of COVID-19 with higher number of prior vaccine doses. Importantly, and it was not because so you could rationalize why that might be the case. Well, maybe people who who are getting the most um, jabs, the most doses of vaccine, are people who are older mm -hmm. and higher at risk anyway. So then, y yes, they're more likely to get COVID because they're higher risk. Mm -hmm. So it would just be incidental that mm -hmm. well, they're they're more likely to get a lot of vaccines mm -hmm. and they're more likely to get COVID. Mm -hmm. But that's not one doesn't have anything to do with the other. However, that is not the case here as they lay out at the mm -hmm. Cleveland Clinic. They're like, okay, we see why you might think that, mm -hmm. but the um, the. Uh, that most of the people in this study were young people. Some young people can be at, at a high risk of COVID if you have a pre-existing condition, but you, you would not expect that to be uh, most of the people. And so they're saying that that really makes this finding um, unexpected. Um, yeah. The risk of, yeah. Yeah, the people, the, despite this, their risk of acquiring COVID-19, the people who had had fewer injections, was lower than those who'd received a larger number of prior vaccine doses. Yeah. So it's worth noting that the overall conclusions of the study is that the vaccines do work. To the bivalent, specifically. The, the bivalent vaccines did work to lower the incidence of COVID, right? Mm -hmm. They work, but this is not a the, the study is not saying that and that ultimate conclusion should be taken into account. The question is whether at a certain point requiring or suggesting that people get multiple vaccines at a certain point that there whether there is diminishing returns. So there's we should distinguish between getting a vaccine or incrementally boosted 
versus a certain volume that seems to have an unexpected effect. The paper also notes that this is not the only study to find a possible association with more prior vaccine doses and higher risk of COVID-19. During an Omicron wave in Iceland, individuals who had previously received two or more doses were found to have a higher odds of reinfection than those who had received fewer than two doses of vaccine in an unadjusted analysis. And it goes through some um, kind of uh, technical scientific reasons why this might be happening, um, something called immune imprinting and some stuff with mm -hmm. the spike protein that I think is beyond the technical uh, know-how of us here. But it is being interpreted as validating some concerns and some anecdotal evidence that people have had that folks in their lives who got more vaccinations and more boosts seem to have succumbed to the virus more frequently than those people who only maybe got the first right. round or what have you. And again, I, I could see for a very at-risk population or the elderly, you might say, well, even if this is increasing the chance you get COVID, honestly, the odds of getting, you know, when a wave comes through, you have good odds of getting it anyway. You want, uh, if you're an elderly person or immunocompromised person, the protection from the dose is more important than some slightly increased odds that you would get it in the first place, the odds being that you're gonna get it anyway. However, to, you know, to repeatedly boost younger people who are healthy otherwise over and over again, they might be saying, well, you know, if I get it, I get it, but I'd rather not, I'd rather not increase my risk of getting it because if I get it, I'm probably going to ha not have such a bad time yeah. with it. And maybe I was, you know, you were, maybe you were, you were vaccinated originally and we're just talking about subsequent doses or maybe you had it before. They're actually in this paper, it does say that um, the, the multivariate analysis also found the more recent the last prior COVID episode, the lower risk of COVID, yeah. saying, again, that's the, you know, some kind of enduring natural immunity. Um, and I, I just keep thinking how, you know, the, the places in our society that are still trying to take this decision away from individuals, like university campuses, where the bivalent, some of them, is going to be required still in the fall, uh, that, that can, like, how... <laughs> how naive and, 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 and unscientific it is to take that decision out of, out of people and their doctors. And then also the kind of the attempts to suppress um, criticism of vaccines, you know, calling it all misinformation that has occurred online and, and elsewhere for the last three years. Well, it uh, yeah. seems so short-sighted. So a, a couple of things. First, it should be noted that this was an unexpected observation in this study, and they, in the study, say that the, it needs to be studied further. Mm -hmm. uh, so that is, you know, it's, we, we, I wouldn't draw too many hard and fast conclusions, although I take Jimmy Dore's point that it does feel like if there is, in fact, a negative result, like making people more vulnerable to getting COVID, and they're just saying, well, we should have studied this more. I can understand people feeling like they are guinea pigs in this situation, right? That the, there, there should have been more of this kind of research that happened earlier, but there was a real hesitancy to do so when we were in the, the throes of the pandemic. But it's also worth noting that the objective or the biggest gain of getting vaccinated we've now known for a long time is preventing hospitalization. So this study is talking about whether or not people are more susceptible to actually succumbing to the virus, but there's a whole separate conversation about whether or not it's preventing you from having the worst outcomes here. So for young mm -hmm. people, 
who already tend not to have the worst outcomes. I think that's a really interesting question that you're raising about college campuses and the like. For even older people, there could be a calculation that says, sure, you might be this percent more likely to catch COVID than you might not if you had gotten multiple boosters. But if you hadn't gotten boosted, you might end up in the hospital or be more likely to die. So it's better just sure. to basically like take on more softer waves than to sure, wait sure, for sure. the one big one and take you out. But this is out. yet more, or this is another point of data in the column of the group of people for which it is least justifiable, if you think it's justifiable at all, to require them to get vaccinated is actually the population where the, the requirements were most likely, school-age populations. Sure, yeah. And I, that's just, that's so, people are going to feel, I think, so gaslit about all this stuff, saying, mm -hmm. again, the, the initial promise, maybe implicitly, I guess, but a lot of people in the media reported it, was that everybody has to get vaccinated, we're really encouraging it, where we're not requiring it outright, we're encouraging it, because this is how we're going to stop the spread, and we're going to you know, get rid of COVID, because we're going to have herd immunity, because you're no longer going to be able to transmit it or get it when you're vaccinated. That didn't pan out. And like, on and on and on and on and on. Yeah, that, that's I, I, absolutely, you know, I'm not that's underselling the vaccines. True. I understand that they are, the, the findings are still that they're very protective against severe disease and death for at-risk populations. But the, the logic of the requirements was really, for the public health rationale was really on stopping cases. Yeah, I, I totally get that, and I agree that yeah. that was the rationale, but it hasn't been now for some time. Yeah. yeah. And so I just think from a public health perspective, as people are considering these kind of studies, it's important to really emphasize yeah. that the goal, the stated goal for some time now, has been to prevent hospitalization and death. And that vaccines, including this study, show that there is a significant benefit uh, right. when the vaccine is correlated to the strain that's happening, it does effectively lower hospitalization uh, and death here. Right. But again, you could have a more targeted, even based on this study, you could say, are you in this risk category? Yeah, look at this study. You would benefit from vaccination. On net, you would benefit, because even if you're increasing your likelihood of getting COVID, the protection is, is important for severe disease and death. You are in this, um, this categorization. You're a healthy young person. And really, all you're doing by getting uh, you know, your fifth or something dose is making it a slightly more likely you're going to get COVID or whatever it yeah. is. And that doesn't make as much sense for you. And, and, we, and we have not had that approach at all. And people yeah. are going to feel, um, I, I think, justifiably outraged. And I think that people like Jimmy Dore, who are saying, well, where was all this research? Why hasn't there been more research about what's going on with COVID? I think are completely right. And I think there also needs to be a sensitivity to and frustration about the lack of research with respect to long COVID as well. Whatever you think about it, the, whether or not it's credible or whether you're skeptical about how, how real it is as a phenomenon, the reality is that we are out of ignorance about what's going on, allowing the government to basically ratchet mm -hmm. back any protections, any long-term um, uh, health care support for people with long COVID, any way to protect, protect themselves against it, and also insulating the manufacturers of vaccines um, from any liability. There's a whole mixed bag of shielding that's happening for people who are going to have out outcomes one way or the other. And I do think that before we are overly interested in saying, well, I don't think that long COVID is a thing because it's being used as a pretext for the government to have overreach. 
also downplaying the possibility of long COVID having these effects as being used as an excuse for the government to not have any responsibility for pol policies that may have set up a significant portion of the American public to be dealing with a, a crisis, a health crisis, where we don't have universal health care long after the government has washed its hands of all of it. Well, I mean, as you know, I remain um, extremely skeptical of uh, a lot of long COVID claims. However, if and I, I don't know well, what it should be studied. People, I mean, that's, it that's should be the studied. Thing. And I don't really know what people who are very worried about long COVID. Uh, I'm not sure what the state of their claims are with respect to like, is it worse if you've gotten it more COVID more times, or is it is it it's if correlated with the severity of the infection? Severity of so if you've gotten it. If you get COVID a bunch of times, but none of them were severe, you're not going to get it. No, it's, it's also correlated with the numbers. Well, of that's times what I'm getting at. So, it, so a, a vaccine that makes you, if you're again in a population where you're not at severe risk of, it's going to make you more likely to get it. Maybe from a long COVID perspective, that well, is I mean, a concern. That cuts, I don't it know. Kind of cuts both ways, but that's well, why again, I, I, I agree with everyone who's who's looking for more 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 research and more studies. And I do think there is, is a real issue with there being so much delay here mm -hmm. in getting some of this kind of information out. Mm. Well, we'll have more rising right after this. Senator Dianne Feinstein reportedly expressed confusion last year over Vice President Kamala Harris presiding over the Senate. According to a New York Times report, Feinstein asked, what is she doing here when she saw Harris presiding over the chamber in the tie-breaking vote last year, according to someone who witnessed the occurrence? The Times writes that Feinstein has at times expressed confusion about how the basics of the Senate functions as well. The 89-year-old senator also reportedly relies heavily on staff to function and is surrounded by aides at all times who, quote, tell her how and when to vote, explain what's going on when she's confused, and shield her from the press, according to the Times. Uh, I mean, I have also found myself wondering <laughs> what is Kamala Harris doing here? So maybe that's not so dispositive, but relatable uh, actually. But I mean, you know, what is what else can we say at this point? She is so clearly beyond the ability to do this job. It's elder abuse. It, she is disoriented frequently. People have spoke her on her staff. People in conversation with her. She looks horrible. She's in, in bad physical shape as well. I mean, she should not have run for re-election. They should have exited her at a time, maybe a less politically perilous time or something. If she did run for re-election, yeah. it's just not, it's so insane that she's I mean, still being propped up. What's interesting about this is that some folks say, okay, fine. Obviously, in retrospect, she shouldn't have run again. People are going to say, well, at the time, we were telling you she shouldn't have run to begin. But okay, mulligans aside, mm -hmm. now what are you going to do? Um, you know, we got her back in there. She voted the way that she was supposed to vote. Uh, it, it's there's some difficulty about replacing her. There's the awkwardness of replacing her. Why are we still talking about this? I do think that a lot of us would like to have seen, would like to see in this moment, a more fulsome conversation about the broader problems with the gerontocracy that's happening in the Democratic Party. But the few Democrats who've been willing to come forward and say, it's a problem that we don't make room for up-and-comers in the party, that up-and-comers in the party are openly antagonized to the way that 
Nancy Pelosi openly antagonized the squad and had to get them in line to make sure that they weren't a quote-unquote problem for her. The way that Nancy Pelosi held on to leadership for so long, seemingly only kind of reluctantly and at the 11th hour after 30-plus years in Congress handing over the reins to Hakeem Jeffries, is part of a bigger issue. And those, those, those Democrats who have come forward to criticize that and to criticize uh, Joe Biden being put forward as the party's choice back in 2020, um, like Julian Castro, have themselves been the subject of a lot of criticism and push out as well. And so, you know, it, it does seem to me to be the case that even if there is some reckoning or some public acknowledgement at this time that what has happened with Dianne Feinstein is a mistake, it seems like a systemic problem that the Democrats have no interest in actually taking on. And the immediate pivot to identity politics to protect her in that position, the, oh, well, they're just, they hate powerful women, something like that. Actually, I was watching over the weekend um, uh, cable news, I can't remember if it was MSNBC or CNN, uh, Representative Katie Porter was being interviewed about the situation, and the, kind of the premise of the interview was, you know, if, if Dianne Feinstein does resign, you know, Katie Porter is interested, she's going to run to, uh, to, for the seat anyway, but the framing was like, well, you know, but Gavin Newsom has, has pledged in the event that happens that he would pick a black woman. So are you, you know, you would, if you wanted that, that spot, it's like you're saying that he should break his promise to black women everywhere. <laughs> it was like the most identity politics framing of this I could possibly imagine, and it was so. And I actually, I, and I don't, I don't share Katie Porter's politics whatsoever. She's not necessarily my, my favorite candidate. We've actually done some reporting on how she treats um, her her staff um, earlier, so I, I wouldn't say she's exactly endeared herself to me. But I felt bad for her trying. Like, she wants to be the the, the figure. It, it should be substantively about her policy views and 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 maybe how she treats her staff. Those things, not. Whether she's a black woman, and and she was being forced into that to almost say that like she'd be taking a spot from they, black women haven't reserved because Gavin Newsom made that from it was so yeah, I, backward the whole I, way. It I was wish being people. Framed. Joe Biden has done this. Gavin Newsom has done this. Notably, it's these white guys who are using the idea of having the power to appoint a black mm. woman to gain some kind of clout, at least they, they perceive it to be getting some kind of clout from the black community. But it does feel like a move that is exploitative in and of itself, because you put whoever the nominee is in the position of having to defend the merit of their, their, their being chosen. Biden did this with Kamala Harris, who I think has a lot of legitimate criticisms made about her. He also did this with Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who is eminently qualified to be on the Supreme Court, but who also now has to fend off accusations that she was picked solely because of her race. And so it seems to me to be a move that ultimately hurts black people. If you have a black candidate in mind, or you think the best candidate for the job is a black person, just say that you want that candidate. But to frame it the way these white men keep framing it, it seems to be only inuring to their benefit to the extent that it is beneficial at all, and really comes with a significant back backlash against both the black women themselves and people like Katie Porter, who, I agree with you, are should be having a conversation about who is best for the seat on the basis of how they can deliver for their constituents, including, by the way, black constituents. I would like to see a lot more focus on the needs of various constituent groups, whatever they may be, including their material needs as opposed to their exclusively racial needs, and instead of focusing so solely on the demographics of the person in the spot, because so often we have seen members of various minority groups 
undermining the interest to betraying the interests of the people that they were elected to represent because power corrupts and the issue isn't necessarily having black faces in high places but some of these structural problems that lead to the corruption in cities that for now half a century have been largely black led without the benefits um, uh, accruing to the black populations there. Right, right. But we'll have to cross that bridge when we come to it. Obviously, um, you know, no indication that she's resigning necessarily anytime soon. Um, despite all of these, just this constant stream of reporting on how incapable she is of doing the job, how it is materially holding up, um, uh, holding up the business of, of judicial appointments, a, a critically important task for for any for the administration while they're in power, right? They have they have the Senate. They can do this. Yeah. Um, well, so the, the Washington Post did a report on this. Apparently, Democrats in the state of California are very divided about what to do about the Feinstein situation. Uh, they write, in more than two dozen interviews, Democratic delegates gathered in Los Angeles were deeply divided about whether Feinstein should stay in her role or step down. Many said they fear that congressional Republicans could block a replacement for her on the Judiciary Committee if she left the Senate before the end of her term. Others expressed uncertainty about whom Governor Newsom would appoint to replace her. That was your point about a right. black woman. So, one, it would be you know, the interim replacement, but it would have whoever he you know, replaced her with would have the power of incumbency and the advantage in the subsequent election. So that is a legitimate concern. But there's also this concern that even though there's no issue with it being a Democrat in the seat, whether or not she could get the same committee appointments is more of a toss-up, and to the extent that there is more of a legislative agenda that needs to get passed before the end of Joe Biden's term, whether or not it's worth the gamble uh, of, of just keeping the old, old dog in the race as it is. Yeah, uh, but <laughs> she is not in good shape. That is so evident. I know we've talked about it almost to death at this point, but it's just so apparent. And, you know, there's also— um, uh, your Pennsylvania senator, same issues, uh, John Fetterman. Although um, Ken Klippenstein made this interesting point recently on Twitter. He said that the, a, a significant difference between the two is that people recover from strokes. People don't recover from mm -hmm. dementia, right? Uh, senility, which is being right. alleged here. So a young man, a relatively young man who has a health crisis that is affecting his speech, perhaps not his cognition. There's been nothing near the kind of claim that's being made about Dan Feinstein in terms of um, uh, John Fetterman's cognition. And also, he's in a position where he can improve over time. This Feinstein situation is only going to get worse. Yeah, only going to get worse until she does exit that seat. Mm, at some one way point. or another, yeah. All right, tomorrow on Rising, we'll be back digging into Brianna's most favorite topics and my least favorite, modern monetary theory and student debt. Oh, I guess we're committed to that. I was going to strike that from the list while you weren't looking. But uh, thanks a lot, writers. Thank, thank, thank you to all the writers. All the writers across the United States of America, including those on strike. This is why we love you. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who like to listen while you're on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Mm. See you later. Take care.